when we have our forests set on fire or the rivers are polluted by mining or when we face deforestation, those are violences against the material heritage. That's Diada Tucano. She's a Brazilian artist, communicator, and activist. She belongs to the Tucanos, an indigenous group in the northwestern Amazon. But we have also the violences against the immaterial heritage, the cultural heritage, the fact that we still deal today with this dynamic of racism and social exclusion and work exclusion, etc., lead us to a really difficult situation with mental health with feeling welcome and in peace in society. I am not telling something new. And I think it's amazing that we manage more and more to find people that are sensitive to that because it is not about just indigenous reality. We consider that we are fighting for everybody. We are fighting for the forest, we are fighting for the waters, we are fighting for the future of the children that are going to be here. So they will not repeat the faults of the past, will not repeat the violences of the past, and maybe we can still dream together about a democracy or about a way of life where we can treat each other with respect. This is Finding Humanity, and I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Through personal stories of courage and purpose, our podcast puts a human face on the most critical human rights and social justice issues facing our world. In each episode, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action, and together, to help create a better world. Dayara is the eldest of nine children. Her family is originally from the upper Rio Negro in the Brazilian Amazon. The Amazon basin spans 2.6 million square miles and covers nine different countries and territories. 60% of the Amazon basin is in Brazil, where it is home to more than 24 million people including many indigenous peoples. Dayara's parents moved from the Brazilian Amazon to Brasilia, the nation's capital, before Dayara was born. They wanted to be part of the indigenous movement taking place there. Despite being born in the city, Dayara always considered herself Tucano because of her origins. In our clan, we are a family of shamans, of erudites. We have really a lineage of historians and medics in our traditional ways. And uh, my great-great-grandfather learned my grandfather to be always in defense of our tradition. And that it was the same way that my grandfather teach my father to defend the traditional Tucanon ways, to not forget our ceremonies, our knowledge and our identity, and to defend our territories. 
Like many other indigenous groups, the Tucano have struggled to defend their territory ever since they were colonized. To be indigenous literally means to be native of a particular place. Indigenous people are those who inhabit a country or geographical region before the arrival of settlers or colonizers. There are 370 million indigenous people around the world. And although these groups are incredibly diverse, the situation of indigenous peoples around the world in some ways is very similar no matter where they are. That's Kristen Carpenter, a professor at the University of Colorado Law School. She recently concluded a five-year term at the United Nations Expert Mechanism on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I think one of the things that most surprised me as I traveled to all of the UN's seven sociocultural regions was just how many things that Indigenous peoples have in common. And those include an attachment to the land, a sense of collective versus individual identity, priority on um, relationships, and relationships not only among other humans, but also with the natural world and the spirit world. But of course, there are also many differences, and those are sometimes the product of the history of conquest and colonization that Indigenous peoples have gone through. One of the really differentiating aspects is whether an Indigenous people has experienced a form of settler colonization, like in the United States or the Americas more generally, where European powers came to our lands and they stayed and they displaced Indigenous peoples' own societies and governments and economies and replaced those with their own versus a more imperial style of colonization. For example, British experience in Africa where um, colonization was really managed from afar and the British Empire had its seat, of course, in the United Kingdom, but was harvesting resources and exploding labor in, let's say, for example, South Africa after the Dutch and managing that across the ocean. So the contemporary situation of Indigenous peoples has a lot to do with the ways that they responded to and are now recovering from those different styles of colonization, among lots of other, of course, cultural and regional and geographic differences. In Brazil, Portuguese settlers arrived in the mid-16th century. At this time, what is now Brazil was inhabited by an estimated 11 million indigenous people, living in about 2,000 tribes. Within the first century of contact, 90% of them were wiped out, mainly due to disease and illness spread by the colonizers. In the following centuries, thousands more died in slavery. For example, in the mid-19th century, Brazil entered into a period known as the Amazon rubber boom. At the time, rubber was a valuable commodity, and the best rubber trees in the world grew in the Amazon. Many indigenous people were enslaved to extract rubber. We even call this uh, period of time as the empire of rubber, rubber empire. We had millionaires that burned uh, cigars out of dollars. We had people build uh, theaters and churches with stones uh, that they brought from uh, Germany uh, in the middle of the Amazon. Something really, really crazy. And uh, the exploitation was all indigenous. Those people came to indigenous territories, took the youngest to far territories inside the Amazon so they would be lost 
and they were put in slave work to the extraction of the rubber tree. My grand-grandfathers uh, went through that. And when rubber became such a interesting commodity to international markets, it began also the interest of the state on what to do with these indigenous peoples that live in the forest. Because we were considered as savages, we weren't considered as citizens, we were considered incapable under the tutel of the state. Throughout the 20th century, the government of Brazil began to assimilate indigenous people into the culture of the Portuguese settlers. We had politics of boarding schools, Catholic boarding schools in the Amazon that were directed by the Vatican and the Salesian groups. They came in our territories and understood that everything in our culture was wrong and from the devil. So they began a really hard phase of Christianization of the indigenous communities. They burnt down the traditional houses of ceremony and they built in those sacred places big, big churches and boarding schools. In those boarding schools, they took little children from six years old as interns and those children had the only language they spoke, the Tucano language, the indigenous language, uh, forbidden. It was obligatory to speak in Portuguese. They learned to read and write in Portuguese. They were baptized with uh, Western names because the indigenous names were forbidden as well. And they went through lots of violence, tortures and punishments if they did not what was demanded. This way of assimilating indigenous groups is not unique to the Amazon. In most countries where settler colonialism was the modality of settling and exploiting the territory, national governments did pass policies and laws requiring the assimilation of indigenous peoples. That's Kristen again. In the Americas, we can talk about the United States and Canada in particular, the assimilation policy had several components. One was to take indigenous lands that were collectively held according to tribes' own land tenure systems and allot them into individual parcels or parcels for heads of family. And that really meant to split, divide, and destroy indigenous communities and in their place to institute the nuclear family the idea of the man or the father as the head of household, and the idea of an individual family as the economic and social unit. That also went hand in hand with the federal government's cooperation with Christian churches. In the United States, Christian churches received missions with federal support across reservations such that they could foster um, and actually require instruction in Christianity so that indigenous children would grow up learning Christianity instead of their own tribal religions. And there was also a policy of requiring English only in those schools, in those communities to eradicate tribal languages. These were policies that were in place in the United States from the 1850s through the 1930s 
And around the turn of the century, the United States even ratcheted it up one level and decided to institute federally funded and religiously funded boarding schools that would take children either voluntarily or through duress right out of their families and out of their communities and place them into schools located hundreds or thousands of miles from their communities to fully indoctrinate them in English, Christianity, and the skills of manual labor. They were even farmed out to white families during the summer so that they could practice those skills and be far away from their moms and their dads and their grandparents and their aunts and uncles who would otherwise teach them tribal traditions. Until the late 20th century, assimilation was also the Brazilian government's official indigenous policy. The land's official peoples were sometimes driven out of their communities and flown by plane to distant locations where they were dropped off. Meanwhile, outsiders seized their land. In some cases, assimilation became extermination. Dayara's father attended a boarding school in Brazil that was designed to assimilate indigenous people into the mainstream culture. When he left the boarding schools and went to do his military service, he had the opportunity to go out and see that actually all this violence that he lived as a child and as a teenager was present every place, the violence against indigenous peoples. And he decided to try to do something, to get in contact with other indigenous leaders of other indigenous nations. Starting in the 1970s, indigenous people in Brazil, like Diara's father, began to meet and organize. In 1988, after several years of struggle for recognition, indigenous peoples in Brazil achieved the guarantee of their rights in the country's constitution. The constitution recognized that the indigenous peoples are the original inhabitants of Brazil and therefore have the right to pursue their own cultural lifestyles without pressure to assimilate. It also recognized their right to the permanent and exclusive possession of their traditional lands. During this period, other indigenous peoples across the world were also standing up for their rights. In the 1970s, many indigenous peoples were attending UN sessions and insisting on a place for their own leaders and representatives to articulate their concerns. And I think that the development of human rights law has been really important for indigenous peoples. So following World War II, human rights as a discipline was very concerned with protecting individuals and minorities from the excesses and powers of state government. And of course, the experience and horrors of Nazi Germany were fresh in everybody's mind. And so the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, later the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, recognized that individual and minority people needed protection for their religion, for their language, for their culture, and so on. But even with those realizations in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, indigenous peoples weren't expressly included in human rights instruments. And states, even when they tried to abide by international covenants, were not always respecting the rights of indigenous peoples. Indigenous peoples, of course, were not content with that. They went to the United Nations, they articulated their own rights to culture, to land, to religion, to economy. 
and increasingly in the 1980s decided that the United Nations needed an instrument that would contextualize and articulate how these universal human rights should apply in their particular circumstances. After three decades of advocacy, Indigenous peoples were able to draft the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which passed the UN General Assembly in 2007. Our chiefs always says, it's not the ceiling, but it's the floor. And it's the floor we never had before to stand on to advance our historic struggles. This document defines the individual and collective rights of Indigenous peoples, including their ownership of intellectual property and of their land. It is unique in that it was the first UN document created for the people and by the people, meaning that Indigenous people from all over the world helped develop it. In Brazil, the rights of Indigenous peoples have been recognized by both the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and by Brazil's 1988 Constitution. However, legislation to enforce these constitutional rights has not been enforced. In fact, multiple laws that undermine indigenous people's rights have been passed. For the last 30 years, or soon 40 years, we are facing lots of political groups in the um, National Congress that wanted to reap indigenous rights all the time. The lobby of agribusiness, the lobby of mining, is still wanting to invade and attack indigenous territories. Today, our challenge is not to get our rights ripped apart. Today, the fight of my generation is to protect what my father's generation has conquered in the Constitution. Indigenous groups in Brazil continue to struggle to uphold their basic human rights under the mandate of President Bolsonaro and continue to face forced displacement. More than half of the locations claimed by indigenous groups have not yet received government recognition. What's worse, Bolsonaro has weakened dozens of environmental protection and encouraged the private development of the Amazon. Globally, the land that indigenous people live on is home to over 80% of our planet's biodiversity and is rich in natural resources such as oil, gas, timber, and minerals. However, these lands are routinely appropriated, sold, leased, or simply plundered and polluted by governments and private companies. Such actions not only lead to the displacement of indigenous people, they also contribute to climate change. One thing that I'm pretty certain of is that much of the development in the Amazon over the past half a century is not very user-friendly to the environment in a time of global warming. That is Michael Heckenberger, a professor of anthropology at the University of Florida. Michael believes that we can learn from indigenous knowledge when addressing climate change. We hear about green technology. We hear about permaculture. Well, this is what indigenous people do by the very nature and always have. They not only know the forest and the rivers by being part of them, by living in them, but they have histories that show remarkable ways that they managed the landscape. This is why I say they didn't really develop it in the sense we normally think of it. 
they kind of nudged it over centuries and millennia to do amazing things. There are ways to nudge the environment or work with the environment to support larger scale production of forest and riverine resources, the native resources, rather than transplanting over them a different system. And we should be looking to the indigenous groups to orient us. They came up with approaches to what we might call today green technology for using this landscape. And this enables us to envision an alternative. Another aspect of that that I think is important to recognize is the Amazon forest is of global ecological importance. And so the ability to keep every tree possible and every fish possible alive and well has repercussions essentially across the globe for everyone. And we do need to find alternatives. We do need to find green technology. And I'll tell you, Amazonian tropical forest peoples are a very good place to look. Experts support this idea. In 2019, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, mentioned that indigenous peoples have much of the knowledge that global communities need to address climate change. We understand that a um, healthy territory, a land that is full of living beings, more than human beings, plants, animals, is a healthy land that a land that has drinkable water is a healthy land. And maintaining that health for us is richness. Maintaining that health for us is progress because what we have lived in the last 500 years is the opposite of progress. We have lived devastation. But the dire environmental harm we are inflicting in indigenous lands is not the only issue indigenous people are facing. When we have our forests set on fire, or the rivers are polluted by mining, or when we face deforestation, uh, those are violences against the material heritage. We have also the violences against the immaterial heritage, the cultural heritage, the fact that we still deal today with this dynamic of racism and social exclusion and uh, work exclusion, etc., lead us to a really difficult situation with mental health with feeling welcome and in peace in society. But happily, the fight of our fathers and grandfathers have led my generation, this new generation, as a generation that has been empowered to use the tools of communication. And when we occupy the internet, the medias, when we publish books, when we make movies, when we make music, when we make art, when we communicate, to the Western society, we managed to share uh, other points of view and invite people to rethink our common history. And that is really important. But that doesn't mean that it is the goal. We need people to understand 
that we are all citizens and as citizens responsible of what happens in our society. If people still electing politicians that defend the interests of industries and not the interests of people, we will still be doomed. Sou da era Tucano, comunicadora independente e mestre em direitos humanos pela Universidade de Brasília. Tenho dedicado os últimos anos a acompanhar o movimento indígena no Brasil e ao redor do mundo. A luta indígena. That's Dayara speaking out for indigenous rights on her YouTube channel. As more indigenous voices like hers come out, we have more reasons to feel hopeful. Now that indigenous people have been able to access education, um, that they've been able to access technology, and increasingly been able to participate in local, national, and international institutions, the stories that they have told in communities for generations are reaching a wider audience through these different modalities. And certainly part of it is social media. I think Indigenous peoples have really harnessed the power of social media to build worldwide movements. And Indigenous peoples around the world are in closer communication than they ever were on that 24-hour-7 cycle that brings us all together. And also Indigenous people have something important to say about some of the global challenges facing us today. Besides learning from the indigenous knowledge of the environment, Kristen believes that we can also learn from their diplomatic capabilities. Indigenous peoples have long been in contact with neighboring groups, necessitating a plurilingual approach, necessitating respect for multiple religions, multiple cultures, multiple economies. That knowledge of diplomacy, how to live in peace with other people, is also a critical element of the global struggle today as different cultures and communities are in closer contact than they ever were before. And so I think it's partly a story of Indigenous voice. It's also a story of Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous know-how. And through all of this, Indigenous people's own resilience is what has kept those communities alive and ready to communicate um, on a global scale. It's not that Indigenous peoples have only recently recovered this knowledge or only recently had such valuable information to share, but that they've only recently acquired a platform to do so. Listening to the stories of Indigenous people is a critical first step, but it can only go so far. To truly advance their rights, we should include Indigenous groups at the decision-making table. There is a movement to enhance Indigenous people's participation in the United Nations as an institution. Those are great developments, but they're not Indigenous peoples participating on their own terms. And I think across the board, Indigenous peoples would like to appear with their own leadership, with their own political institutions, with their own laws, customs, and traditions to engage in those international settings. And so this movement at the United Nations to enhance Indigenous peoples' participation is a very important step toward honoring not only the substantive rights, 
but the procedural rights of Indigenous peoples in international institutions. At the end of the day, Diara reminds us that the fight for Indigenous rights is everyone's fight. It is not about just Indigenous reality. We consider that we are fighting for everybody. We are fighting for the forest, we are fighting for the waters, we are fighting for the future of the children that are going to be here. So they will not repeat the faults of the past, will not repeat the violences of the past, and maybe we can still dream together about a democracy or about a way of life where we can treat each other with respect. We need to stand up. The love for life, the love for the land that we live, the love for our history, the love for diversity, the respect for every different culture. All the warriors that stand up, even if they are elderly or men or women or children, they do it for love. modern rights of indigenous groups is central to honoring our rich human legacies and the lands on which we live today. Through our podcast, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action. There are many ways to do that. Here are just a few suggestions. First, learn more about the land on which you live. In connecting the land we live on today with its past history, we are able to relate to it a bit more. Second, support efforts to preserve and protect indigenous rights in your local community, country, and around the world. Third, learn more about indigenous rights and ending violence against indigenous communities. Use the educational toolkit that we've prepared on our website. Host a teach-in, share it with your friends, colleagues, and family. Knowledge is power, and you have the power to inspire real change. To learn more about this episode, check out the links to resources on our show notes and on our website, findinghumanitypodcast.com. I invite you to please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you've enjoyed Finding Humanity, please share it and leave us a review. To learn more about topics in our podcast and other opportunities to engage with us, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at find underscore humanity and on Facebook at Finding Humanity Podcast. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. Our executive producer is Camille Lorente. Associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas. Assistant producer is Diana Galbraith. 
Associate Production, Policy and Research by Martina Vanat, Aisha Amin, and Carolina Mendica. Mixing, Editing, and Music by Maverick Aquino. For this episode, I'd like to thank Diana Tucano, Kristen Carpenter, and Michael Heckenberger. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode. <laughs>